You've reached the Onkin Radio Podcast. Nick Onkin here, exploring the world from creativity, consciousness, and everything in between to help you alchemize your life to its fullest expression. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? My name is Nick Onkin, host of Onkin Radio Podcast over here. And today's guest is a third time, third time guest, returning guest, one of my really close friends, Connor Beaton. Uh, we will be talking about his new book called Men's Work. And this is such a great topic and a well-needed space for today's world, exploring the shadows of your psyche as a man. And if you're a woman, you can still listen to this book because it'll help you understand your man. We talked a little bit about that in the podcast, but Connor has such a great way of shedding light into uh, how men operate and um, the work that needs to be done. And the book is all about that and gives you lots of space to explore yourself, discover yourself, and dive deeper into who you are and how you can step up as a man and in today's society. And also, like I said, women, you can read this book and understand men a lot more. So you'll probably like the both both genders, all genders, We'll probably like this interview. It's a great one. We dive into some deep topics in this. Also, if you didn't know, I've been working on a thing called Identity Alchemy, which is the process that I have called that I use for photo shoots for entrepreneurs and authors and speakers. And if you want to learn more, I'm also developing a course coming up here called Identity Alchemy 101, where I teach you how to create an aligned personal visual brand from the inside out to uh, to help you create more a magnetic visual personal brand that attracts clients and helps uh, raise your profile and, and presents you to the world in, in terms of your personal brand. And uh, your personal brand is your legacy. It's, it's the mark that you get to leave on the world and it will help you, developing your personal brand will help you in so many different ways. And we're going to dive into that on the course. So stay tuned if you're interested. Go ahead and DM me over on Instagram, the letters IA. Uh, my Instagram is at Nick Onkin. If you are interested, and I'll send you the info, we're about to drop the launch the course here soon. So there'll be a short window that you can actually jump in. Uh, it'll be the first time I'm doing it live. And... Um, It'll be a, a great course to learn and develop yourself, develop your brand, help raise your profile and your income and all the things. And also, if you didn't know, I have begun, well, a while ago making custom hats called Totem Crowns and wanted to share that with you guys here on the podcast. You can go to onkinmade.com or at onkinhat to check those out. I'll also be dropping some jewelry and different things coming up as well and the vision is to create a lifestyle brand of all the stuff that we're about here and uh, in Onkin's world and uh, things that will help make your life more expressive and more optimized different things we'll see we'll see what comes so with that without further ado I bring to you my friend Connor Beaton What's up, everyone? We've got my friend, my dear friend, Connor Beaton on the show. Again, returning guest. Man Is it a three-peat? Am I three-peating? It might be a three-peat. The second one the second one was with you and V. Uh-huh. But your, yeah. still, it still counts. Still counts. You got a three-peat here. Hell yeah. I love that. Well, thanks for having <laughs> me. Thanks for having me back, brother. Yeah. Love to. Always. Pleasure. And yeah, we want to talk about uh, your your new book, Men's Work, coming out. So I kind of actually just want to dive into the idea of what is men's work because <laughs> that concept could be very vague to you know people that maybe not are not in the work or even know what the work is. So maybe we we'll just start off kind of like how would you break that down? Yeah, well, from a historical context, men's work kind of started back in like the 70s and 80s with something called the mythopoetic men's movement. And it was with guys like Robert Bly, who wrote Iron John. And they started 
this this reemergence of an ancient tradition that we have had throughout histories and across cultures and across religions and ethnicities and et cetera, which is bringing men together to have conversation, to have some kind of discourse about what it means to be a good, healthy, responsible, grounded man within culture. Mm. And men's work can mean many things. I mean, I, I hesitated to call the book men's work because in our current culture, there is a, a sort of movement that's called men's work. And it it's generally encapsulates men who are doing some form of self-discovery, self-development, self-growth, self-inquiry. That's generally what men's work is. You can sort of think of men's work as I am a man who is wanting to improve himself in some capacity or wanting to understand himself in a more deep way. And that's kind of the umbrella of what men's work is. And there's many different forms of it. And there's many different um, people around the world that are doing quote unquote men's work. And some have more spiritual veins and some have more of the, of the mythological perspective. And some are more rooted in, psychology and therapy, uh, therapeutic modalities. And so there's, there's just a mix of everything, but essentially you can just distill it down to men's work is a, a place for men to, to go and self-reflect and have self-inquiry and understand themselves better and what they want and what they desire and who they ultimately want to be. So that's just yeah. a very high level sort of definition of what it is. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And how does men's work reflect into relationships i feel like that's a big piece of doing the work is because it really helps with relationships that relationships to oneself but also relationships with other men and your partners whatever that looks like yeah well i mean what's interesting is that there's been some research over the last decade about you know, what are men's sort of highest values? There's some research by a gentleman named Dr. John Barry. And he, I, he, I can't remember exactly what he runs, but it's, it's something like the men's research center or something like that out of the UK, I believe. And he posed the question, you know, what do men really find fulfilling? What are men's, like, what are some of men's highest values and what do men prioritize and find really rewarding? And interestingly enough, personal development was at the top. And so one of the things that he started to discover is that for us as men, when we are in some form of pursuit, developing ourselves, whether that's physically, you know, going to the gym, going to Brazilian jiu-jitsu or martial arts, developing ourselves cognitively and learning a new skill or developing ourselves relationally and sexually, when we are developing ourselves, we are more fulfilled as men and we are more satisfied and more satiated. And I think one of the things that, you know, the intersection between men's work and, and relationships is that men want to be successful in relationships. You know, they, they want to be happy in a relationship. And I think that the dating world today is a bit of a clown show. <laughs> I think it's a bit of a shit show. Uh, if that's the clinical terminology, right? The clown show. But I think it's a bit of a mess. I think that, you know, technology has both helped and hindered uh, relationships in a number of different ways that we could talk about. But I think that men are really trying to figure out how do I have a successful relationship in today's climate how and culture? How do I be happy in, in my marriage or in my open relationship or whatever the dynamic is? You know, how do I find what's fulfilling for me? How do I get my needs met within the relationship? And so men's work really helps an individual man define what it is that he wants relationally, but then it also gives the, the tools and helps a man develop the skills to be successful in his relationships, whether that's his capacity to communicate or set boundaries or create structure or create direction or be open and transparent or you know, to communicate what he wants sexually. Men's work allows a man to do that type of work. So like my slogan for my company is it's not therapy, it's training. And so mm. I kind of take this approach that men's work isn't 
isn't necessarily a therapeutic modality. It's a, a kind of quest or adventure where you are training yourself up towards the type of man that you know you're capable of becoming. And I think that that's generally a pretty worthy endeavor for a lot of men. And it's very richly rewarding. You know, we like to build things. We like to create things. And what's more inspiring, rewarding than creating and building yourself into somebody that you respect and appreciate and know offers value to the world around you? So I know that maybe it's a bigger answer than you expected, but um, <laughs> no, or we're necessarily even asking for. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Do you think there's ever like, is there some sort of, and I, I don't feel like there's ever an end to the, the deep work because there's always so many different layers to unpeel, but maybe there is some sort of way to kind of get to a point where you're at a, at a, in a flow state after doing so much deep work. Would you say there is like, is there is there some sort of trajectory that in men's work that you would be talking about? Yeah, you know, I think there's a good example in the the Iliad written by Homer, where you know the main character goes off on this massive adventure that spans. I don't actually remember how long it is, but it's I think it's well over a decade, and returns home a much in you know from his watching his journey as you read the book a much more proficient human being you know somebody that's able to contribute and feel a sense of happiness and then he goes off on another adventure at the end of the book right so he like departs again to, at the end and so i i would say that this self inquiry is less about a destination and more about embodying what most people talk about when they say enjoy the journey you know it's like it's not about the destination it's about the journey i think that men's work is really this this process where you get to embody the enjoyment of the journey so mm -hmm. i think that some things that people can expect though just maybe a more tactical answer that's less sort of esoteric and existential is you are going to develop skills that build your confidence you're going to surround yourself with other men that you are inspired by that push you that challenge you that support you so that's a really beneficial outcome i think that in many ways your relationship is going to improve your intimate relationship in the sense that you'll be less reactive so there are some very clear points i think it'll also help you get a much deeper sense of your purpose in life you know why why are you here and where do you find meaning in life? I think that it actually is connected with that as well. And so I think that those are some of the, the sort of like tactical and practical outcomes, you know, improve your ability to have hard conversations, to regulate yourself, you know, under stressful circumstances, whether that's at work with a boss or, you know, a client or what have you. So I, I think that those are kind of the things that that people, that men can expect when they start any kind of work that is related to this. Mm. Got it. So what would you say, like, what's been your own journey of doing the work? Like, what would be a, your story and maybe an over in the arc of what led you to all the, the content in the book? Like, what, what's your own personal story in that regards? Yeah, well, you know, I think I was living this this life of duality in a lot of ways so if you had met me 10 12 years ago who you would have met was somebody that looked like they have it all together on the outside but was a complete disaster behind the scenes you know so i i was traveling around the world i had this interesting career i had this you know beautiful girlfriend i you know, I was starting to make money. I had the motorcycle and the Mustang. And, you know, I was sort of like living this life that looked really good on the outside. And, but behind the scenes, I was really struggling. And I was, you know, I was struggling with addictive behaviors, you know, porn, drugs, substances, alcohol, a lot of infidelity. Uh, so, you know, behind the scenes, I was really struggling and no one really knew what was going on. Like nobody had a clue. Maybe, maybe they had some inclination that I was in a bad place sometimes, but nobody knew the extent of what was actually going on behind the scenes. And what ended up happening was that 
like a lot of men, I was convinced that nothing in my life would change until I hit this rock bottom, until I bottomed out and everything fell apart. And that that's one of the ways that change occurs, just as a sort of side note, is that things get so bad that they have to change. And I was convinced that nothing in my life would change until I sort of bottomed out. And, and that happened. My girlfriend at the time found out that I had been unfaithful. You know, I couldn't talk my way out of it like I had done in the past. I was questioning my career and whether or not I wanted to be in that career. And and so, you know, she moved out of the place that we were living in and I didn't want anybody to know. And so I moved all my stuff into storage and I moved into the back of my car rather than telling people what was going on. And I lived out of the back of my car for a uh, little over two, two weeks and slept in my car and slept in parking lots and 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 did that on some level because that's what I thought I deserved. You know, it was it's, it was like an indicator of what was happening inside of me that that I was really, you know, I had this perspective that I was broken somehow or there's something wrong with me. And I had a really nasty internal dialogue. I really I talked to myself in a really damaging way. And after those like two after that, like two and a half weeks, I started to open up, talk with some friends in my life and share what had been going on behind the scenes. You know, and I, I was fortunate enough to have a mentor in my life at that time who was quite a bit older. Uh, he was in his 70s. And two things happened. One, he took me under his wing and started to apprentice me. And he was versed in Jungian psychology and cognitive behavioral therapy and neurolinguistics programming and Zen and Buddhism and Taoism. And so I started to apprentice with him. And it, it would actually turn into a two and a half year apprenticeship where I would, he, he sort of acted as a mentor and he, he trained me in all of these psychological and, and spiritual modalities. And I would, you know, pay him for his time when I had money and sort of volunteer when I, when I couldn't, and I would chop wood and help him with his asparagus farm. Cause he grew asparagus and some other, other stuff. And and, and so that really helped to reconcile my relationship with men because I had been, I had been really hurt by men in my childhood. You know, my, my dad had left when I was three and I saw him, you know, a couple of times a month, but it, it wasn't sort of sufficient for me. And then my stepdad and I didn't have a great relationship when I was growing up. He was, you know, he's pretty emotionally abusive and verbally abusive and sometimes physically abusive. And so that dynamic with that older man, you know, supporting me and helping me and and teaching me was incredibly healing. And so that was the one thing. And then the other thing was that as I opened up to my, my friends, I had conversations with the men in my life. And what I started to see happening was that when I was honest and transparent about how I had been struggling, they would, they would naturally just be honest and transparent back and tell me about some of the ways that they had been struggling that nobody really knew about. And that hit home in a conversation. And I wrote about this in the book. I wrote about a decent amount of this in the book, but that hit home in a conversation with a friend of mine who I had gone to university with, where I basically sat down and told him everything that had been going on behind the scenes in my life. And, and he, you know, he sort of paused and, and got fairly emotional and thanked me, which I thought was odd, <laughs> but then proceeded to tell me that he had tried to take his own life a month and a half before this conversation. Mm. And in that moment, I remember just being sort of gut punched, you know, like winded and frustrated at this idea that I knew everything about this dude. Like I knew the type of scotch he liked to drink and the women that he liked to date and you know, the type of TV shows that he liked to watch, but I didn't know how he was, how he was struggling and what he was really battling and the demons that he was fighting internally. And he didn't know those things about me either. And I realized that most of the men that I had relationships with, they were very surface level relationships. And so something got ignited in me to do something about that because everywhere I went, not all the time, but in general, I saw men who had very surface level relationships and their lives were suffering because of it. Their relationships were suffering because of it. Their happiness and their fulfillment was suffering because of it. 
And so it wouldn't be until, you know, years later that I would, I would start man talks and, and, you know, step into what I'm doing today. But that was, that was the catalyst, you know, that those, those things were really the catalyst for me embarking on this journey. Wow. That's uh, quite the journey you've had. What would, uh, what would you say are some of the deeper topics or ideas that you pulled from that journey into the book that you want to share with, share with people, with your, with the audience? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the book is sort of chunked into three sections, which is, well, there's four actually lead, love, liberate, and legacy. And I started with lead and in the, in the beginning, I talk about the shadow quite a bit, this concept by Carl Jung. And I talk about the shadow of the father. And I think that one of the things that is, is getting some attention now within our culture is how damaging not having a father around can be. And there's some crazy stats and, and research and data that's out there that, that shows how challenging it can be to not have a father around or to have a father who is around, but, you know, is abusive or to have a father that's around, but is neglectful. You know, there's many different forms of absent father, but it's something like one in four kids in America are going to grow up without a father in the house or a father figure in the house. And so, you know, that that's pretty substantial. And, and then when you look at the, then when you look at the, the data around the impact of that, I mean, it's pretty wild, right? It's like 90% of all kids that run away or are homeless come from fatherless homes. 80% of all kids that drop out of school come from fatherless homes. And you can just keep going down the list. 85% of kids that have some kind of developmental disorder come from fatherless homes. So I spent a little bit of time talking about what's your relationship as a man to your father or to the man that raised you, because it's such a, a paramount relationship. It's so important. And there's, again, it's not, it's not just that, that men are absent. It's that we have a kind of vacancy within the father archetype, within our culture, within our society, within our homes. And so I talk about the shadow of the father and, and say, you know, regardless of what your relationship was to him, you need to understand that the, your relationship with your dad casts some kind of a shadow, whether that's, you know, he was this larger than life character and you felt like you would never live up to him or, you know, he was really extremely religious and, you know, you felt a, a kind of disconnection with him and not feeling like you understood him or he was never around or he abandoned you or he was abusive to your mother or, you know, whatever the case may be, or he was reckless and out of control with his own anger. And so I think one of the things that I start the book by talking about is, is our relationship to our fathers, because that is the blueprint, our primary example of our relationship to masculinity and to men at large. And so to understand your relationship to your own masculinity and to understand your relationship to men, you need to start by looking at your relationship to your father and reconcile with that. And it's not to blame him and it's not to, you know, sort of complain about him endlessly. It's just to get a very clear picture of who was he? Who did you expect him to be? Who did you want him to be that he wasn't? And can you reconcile with the man that he was and the man that you wanted him to be or expect yourself to be to live up to him? Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, now it makes me reflect on my own relationship with my dad and, you know, growing up in the church and how, you know, I discovered by looking at doing work that I, looking back, that I had a huge fear of judgment because of the way that he showed up to me. You know, he was always like, shut down when he was when we would my sister and i say would talk about things about outside the, the christianity or god or whatever and mm. he gets super verbally affirmative and encouraging when we talk about the stuff of god and the bible and all this stuff and you know i think subconsciously i walked away with this fear of judgment of like oh if i'm if i'm not good boy if i'm not talking about 
church stuff that I'm that I'm not a good a good kid or a good boy or whatever. And so yeah. I think there was like a level of judgment and shame that came from that. But I I wasn't aware of it obviously when I was a kid. That was like it's a reflection of looking back upon it after having done work. Yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting to kind of see that and be aware of that, you know. And then, you know, how do I, you know, how do I deal with that now? Like what would you say to that in in ter- in regards to what you're talking about? Yeah, well, you know, I kind of tie I tie this idea into into shadow work, which is another core idea of the book which we can talk about maybe after, but I think in many ways, again, it's about getting very clear and honest with ourselves about what our relationship was to our father and what it is to our father and to, to see how that has impacted our connection to ourselves as men and how it's impacted our connection to other men, you know, to start to see, do I avoid feedback from men because it hurts to get any kind of criticism from guys or be challenged by them. Do I avoid, you know, competing with other men because I'm worried about being embarrassed, right? And can I step into some of these experiences where I'm going to allow myself to to express a desire or a need or a want that I would otherwise not because of this, you know, because of this dynamic that I had with my with my dad. So so part of it is is finding a, a layer of of forgiveness towards our fathers. But I think the other part is what I've seen in our culture, because there's this kind of plague of really of really strong present fathers, it's actually starting by grieving not having a father present you know, a father who could teach us, a father who could mentor, a father that we deeply respected, a father who could give advice when necessary, a father who could create some structure and order for us and teach us the value of discipline. You know, I learned that discipline was a punishment as a kid. I didn't learn how to be disciplined as a human being. I learned that when I fucked up, I was going to get punished. And so that that's what I learned discipline was. And so what did I do later on in life? Whenever I screwed up, I would punish myself. I would berate myself. I'd beat the crap out of myself. I would shame myself, you know? And, and this is what so many of us as men do is that we take the hand-me-downs of what it means to be a man from our father. And so we need to be able to sift through some of that stuff to be and be really honest about where maybe where things weren't sufficient and to grieve the absence of what we really needed as a boy and then to start to seek that in a healthy way from men within our communities right like joining something like the alliance there's many which is a uh an online men's group that i run with like five six hundred guys from around the world you know, there's many versions of that that you can go and find. I mean, you and I are a part of a men's group, you know, and it's and it's incredible because we have great conversations and we know one another and there's open dialogue and we can challenge one another and disagree. You know, we don't always agree on this on the same thing, you know, and everybody's personality gets to come out and it's it's wild sometimes. But I don't know about you, but I've I've found it to be very healing on many levels because I just get to be the real version of myself, good, bad, ugly, you know, the failure, the the whole thing. So I think that those are some of the important pieces is, is to, to allow ourselves to grieve maybe what wasn't present from our father, allow ourselves to honor who he was and, and to love and respect the parts of him that were good and were valuable that we can take. Because I think the other tendency is that if we've had a father who is absent or or neglectful or abandoning or abusive in some ways that we we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we just get rid of it it's like oh, i never i just don't want to be anything like him and we miss out on the fact that there may have been traits that he was teaching us all along that were very valuable so i think that that's that's really the work that we get to do and there's value in that and at some point we can once we've done that set that down and 
begin to say, okay, I can love my father for who he is if we're fortunate enough to still have him in our lives, regardless of whether or not he's who we want him to be. And that's a very important thing. You know, can I, can I love and be in relationship with my father or my mother for that matter, even though they might not be who I want them to be? You know, that's kind of the sign of maturity is that we step out of this game of trying to get our parents to be who we think that they've wanted to be who we we think that we've needed them to be and actually just accept who they naturally are and in that there's a kind of freedom right because we're no longer playing this game of you know i'm a 30 year old man who needs my dad to act like this or call me at this time or be this way we've done the work we felt the grief we've forgiven him we've sought understanding you know and we can step into a more mature place where we're not constantly operating in this debilitated way because of that relationship. So I know I said a lot there, but I, I think it's an important one. All right, my friend, I want to tell you about today's sponsor. And it is one of my favorite brands, Organifi. Uh, as you know, I'm all about putting healthy things into my body and using different supplements and things to get the nutrients that I need uh, when I can't always have access to them through other means of vegetables and things like that. So one of my favorite uh, mixtures is something that I like to mix three of their products together. It's the pure, the red juice, and the green juices. And it's a power pack of nutrients in the morning. Um, so I've been doing this every morning. And what's been great is I've been taking it on my travels so that I can keep some daily nutrients with me, especially when it's a very travel schedule. I don't always have access to foods that I want to eat. Um, so it's a great staple, great way to um, bring things on the road. They have little travel packs too, which is perfect. So you can just drop them in, mix them with water, and they're delicious. Less than three grams of sugar, uh, which is very, very little, and it's all organic. Either way, no processed sugars. Uh, so the green juice, which is great, is just you get your daily doses, your daily dose of nutrients that you need. You just mix it with water. There's 11 superfoods like ashwagandha, morninga, chlorella, spirulina, turmeric, and much more. The red juice is a superfood berry blend that contains adaptogens, antioxidants, and a clinical dose of cordyceps mushrooms, which is highly, highly beneficial to you. There's 13 superfoods for energy support like beets, blueberries, acai, pomegranate, Siberian ginseng, reishi mushrooms, rhodiola, and more. So it gives you a bunch of energy without the caffeine. Um, and then Pure. Uh, Pure is about promoting gut health and the morning brain fog is very helpful. It promotes healthy BDNF levels and mental clarity. For those of you that don't know what that is, I didn't. I had to look this up. Uh, Brain-derived neurotropic factor. It's the key molecule involved in plastic changes related to learning and memory. So neuroplasticity, things like that. Uh, what's great, it's infused with lion's mane and coffee berry. Got baobab from an African fruit that contains 10 times the amount of vitamin C that oranges do. It's got apple cider vinegar to improve gut health. Contains all kinds of other goodies like aloe vera, ginger root, monk fruit, digestive enzymes, and more. So you can go check this out, uh, Organifi.com. That's with an I uh, at the end, not a Y. And you can use the code Onken, O-N-K-E-N, for 15% off at checkout. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think when we can kind of get to the space that we know that our parents did the best that they could with the tools that they had at the time to raise us. You know, it's interesting. I mean, we all have different upbringings, you know, and some like more tumultuous than others. Like, I mean, I had a really great upbringing, yet I still walked away with shit from <laughs> shit that I inherited from <laughs> like my own being interpreted from the situation. Right. So, I mean, I think no matter who we are, we always, there is always something to work through. Like, I don't know if there's, I've heard anybody who's had perfect parents that have like even, you know, like had some sort of like traumatic or things that people you, people have had to work through um mm. i feel like i don't know maybe you've met somebody that's like I don't know. <laughs> not yet <laughs> not yet i have i've met people that have convinced themselves for a period of time that they had the world's perfect parents and and again this isn't about trying to find some some dirt on your parents it's just about seeing our parents as 
as human beings, you know, not as sort of like perfect gods or, you know, these only flawed human beings that had no, no, no valuable traits to them. Right. We <laughs> oftentimes as, as, as kids, we get, and even as adults, we can get stuck in this modality of, of extremes, you know, oh, my parents were just the best. They were the best. And there was nothing wrong. And, and we can blind ourselves to important data and information about who we actually are when we, when we can admit the fallibility of our parents or we, that, that, you know, we can admit that they had good aspects and strengths that we can pull on, even though they may have been abusive or, or harmful in some capacity. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted, I thought, you know, how, you know, for women out there, do you think this book has any appeal to them? Cause I know a lot of you, a lot of, you get a lot of women that are very, that love your content and love what you put out there because it helps them, you know, to learn how to relate to their man better and, and different things like that. Would you say this is, this book is a piece of that, or if it's really way more geared towards men specifically? Yeah. I mean, the, de the, the book is definitely for men written to men from men about men. Like it's, it's definitely that, but my editor is a woman. It, actually, there's a few editors that have worked on the book that have been women who have absolutely and they're probably biased because they're working on my book but have <laughs> raved about it and loved it and and just said you know i've learned so much about my brother and i've learned so much about my boyfriend and like i totally under my understand my father now and so you know it's almost like getting getting a behind the scenes look at what the work a man can do actually is you know some of the mechanisms of of where we tend to avoid and sabotage and why we do those things so it's almost like entering into a conversation that's into a, into a chat room that's all men and just getting to kind of like listen in, you know, it's like, what are they saying? And why do they think that way? And why are they doing that? And so the women that have read the book, and I've been on a couple other shows, like Danica Patrick's, uh, who's a, a former race car driver, which, you know, a woman, Dr. Nicola Perra, who have read the book and, and really loved it and said that they learned a lot. So yeah, I, I think that women can absolutely read it. I would say, I, I would actually say, if you're going to give it to a man, then you should probably read it first, you know, or at the very least, you should read it with him. Because I think a lot of the times, not that you need to like quiz him on it or test him, like I'm just gonna, <laughs> that's probably not gonna go over very well. But at the very least, you know, I think oftentimes what we do in relationships is like, you need to do this, you know, you need to go do this course or read this book, but we don't do it ourselves. And so, you know, I, I would just say that there might be immense value in reading this book with your partner or diving into diving into it yourself if you're whether you're single or in a relationship, because I think it'll it'll give a lot of context. Love that. Love that. What are some of the other uh, yeah, I guess what what are a couple of the other topics that you cover in the in the book? You said you had there's three sections and the first section is the shadow and then a little bit more on the uh what are, what are the second second two? Yeah, I mean, I think at some point we should definitely talk about infidelity and porn, which is a, a pretty mm. big topic in the book. I think, you know, I talk about love. That's the second section. So I talk about our relationship to women as men. Mm. And I take a little bit of a different approach, which I think is is good rather than saying, you know, this is how women are and this is what women want. And this, you know, this is what the feminine is and and what the feminine wants, which is what I think a lot of books for men traditionally do. They they define, you know, this is what women are and what feminine is and what they want. I took the approach of saying, you know, rather than trying to focus on that, and if you want, maybe we should just go down this this rabbit hole a little bit. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> but let's do it. I think I think. Oftentimes we as men are very externally focused. You know, we like to look at how do I build something? How do I create something? How do I how do I solve this problem that I see in my relationship as an example? And so I think that because we're oftentimes and again it's a, it's a general, you know, statement, it's not a rule necessarily, but I think because oftentimes we're very externally focused, we get caught in our relationships trying to figure the other person out in order to get our needs met. So we get caught in this dynamic of like, well, if I can just figure her out and solve her problems 
or figure out what she needs in any given moment, then maybe I can get my needs met too, right? It's like that classic, you know, cliche, happy wife, happy life. Like if I can get her to be happy and I can get her to feel good and I can get her to whatever, then maybe I'll be happy too. So it puts our happiness on the other side of that person and sort of offloads it, which never works. And it creates resentment and conflicts and <laughs> neediness. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's just a mess when it happens, right? Yeah. Were you going to say something? No, I said, well, yeah, I mean, I said, I, like, I've been there. I totally realized through a relationship that it's not my job to make the other person happy. Yeah. And, and I think that we all have to some degree. And so, but rather than saying, this is how a woman is or what she wants. And so this is how I have to operate as a man, which I, again, I think that a lot of stuff out there says, not that it's incorrect or bad. I think some of it's phenomenal, right? Some of it is, is really, really good teaching and wisdom. I just took the approach of saying, who do you as a man become in the relationship? Who do you as a man become with the woman that you're dating? Do you become more needy? Do you become volatile and more angry and more combative? Do you become more childish and shut down? You know, do you become more emboldened and willing to take risks and, and pursue what it is that you ultimately want to create in your life? Like what gets revealed about you in the relationship? Because I think that that's far more valuable to us as men than it is just trying to operate in a certain way because we're trying to make a woman happy. And so, yeah. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is, you know, rather than seeing, and cause this is, I think of the perspective that I held for a long time. It's like women are the adventure, you know, pursuing women is the adventure. Trying to get women is the adventure. Trying to figure them out is like this fun endeavor, trying to understand what they want and what they need and why they thought a certain way. I mean, it was, you know, it can get intoxicating for a man rather than seeing them as the journey we turn the lens around and we see ourselves as the journey and we see our own morals our own ethics our own development our own sense of self-understanding our own capacity to ground our own capacity to pursue the things that light us up and fuel us as the worthy endeavor and so when when we can do that if we can kind of accept that as a frame for operating in a relationship, it opens up a lot of doors because then we're not constantly expending so much energy trying to just figure out the other person or solve their problems or why is she doing that? Why did she say that? You know, we don't, we don't go down that pathway. We actually return to who am I being in this conflict, in this argument, you know, in this sexual interaction, who am I being, what's being revealed about me? And so I think that's one of the big pieces that I, I talk about in the book and sort of give very specific tools and exercises because the book is like chock full. Every, every chapter has questions that men can journal on and dig into. And that it also has exercises and experiences and, and challenges that guys can do because I wanted to make it tactical and practical. So there's a, a ton of stuff that guys can do. So I think, I think that's a really big part. And then secondly, what's being revealed about you in the relationship and why is it important? You know, I think what we often do as men is like, oh, I found this, you know, I, she's great. I really like her and I'm falling for her, but I find myself being insecure and needy and I hate that. Well, maybe rather than disliking what's being revealed about you, start to inquire about why that part of you is coming out. Like, why do you feel insecure around this woman? You know, what, what about you is trying to get resolved or developed or built? You know, is there a part of you that is feeling insecure because you don't feel strong enough or, or sexual enough in the relationship? Is there a part of you that's being revealed because you don't feel competent enough in communication or setting boundaries, you know? So who what's being revealed about you in the relationship is incredibly important it's it's really important data to look at and and what we need to do is just shift that lens away from trying to figure them out onto 
what about me is being revealed in the relationship? And can I own that? Can I work with that? Can I talk about it with the men in my life? Because it's so much easier for us as men to say, you know, my wife is, she's been complaining so much lately, or my, you know, my girlfriend is just, you know, so emotional all the time and blah, 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 versus saying, I actually feel unable to deal with my girlfriend's anger. You know, if she gets angry, I get afraid. That's way harder for a guy to admit. But then if you can do that, at least you have something to work with. You know, you can develop a skill. You can work on yourself in some capacity. It's much more empowering than to sort of pass the buck and say, oh, I, I dislike her behavior. I don't like it. Or she's the problem. So yeah, I mean, I'll just pause there because I feel, feel like that's probably enough on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I, that that can go go deep down the rabbit hole i did let's let's dive into porn a little bit like what do you what would you say that the effect that porn has on a man and the psyche and and a relationship so i'll just start by saying that there's i have a personal bias (laughs) because porn (laughs) porn is played and i say this in the book you know, I'm I'm not interested in having a debate about whether porn is good or bad. That that I think is less relevant. And I think most of the time when porn comes up in conversation, people sort of devolve into this argument about whether porn is good or bad. And I'm less interested in that because I don't think it is actually there's a time and place for that conversation, but I don't think it's necessarily helpful. I'm also biased because, you know, I I found porn when I was like 12, 13 years old. And this is way back in the day of dial-up internet. <laughs> so, you know, it's like loading line by line a photo of a woman. Uh, <laughs> it was like, which was, you know, you had to have a lot of patience to watch porn in the inception of the internet. But like I said, I, I really, it really became a problem for me in the sense that I watched it constantly, you know, in my teens and in my early 20s. And it was something that I would watch almost daily. And it was something that sometimes I would watch for hours. And it really became, in in the true sense of a word, the, an addiction. And I think that the unspoken addiction epidemic that's happening is, is how many men are actually addicted to porn behind the scenes. You know, how many men are in marriages that are sexless, but they've been watching porn, you know, four or five times a week. And so, so in order to have this conversation, I think we just need to sort of label what porn is. Porn is number one, entertainment. And porn is number two, what's referred to in the clinical literature as a supra normal experience. And so in the book, I talk about how porn is a supra normal experience. And all that that means, we have supra normal experiences all the time, right? If you went to a Thanksgiving dinner or a Christmas dinner, and you ate way more than you normally would, that's a supra normal experience, right? You're, you're taking in more, you're consuming more than your body would normally take in. And in small amounts, that's not necessarily a problem, right? Your body can adapt to a super normal experience, right? So if you have that Thanksgiving meal, and then, you know, the next day you go back to eating the normal portions that you would normally eat, your body can adjust. But the challenge is, is that when your diet consists consistently of super normal experiences sexually, it creates all kinds of problems. So, so porn is a super normal experience in the sense that any 15 year old boy, any 16 year old boy, any 30 year old man can go online right now and see more naked women in the span of 30 minutes or an hour than any human being in the past had seen in their lifetime. Like, just just think about that, right? You can go watch porn as a man, and you can go in the span of 30 minutes to 60 minutes and see more naked women doing all kinds of things, right? Every single wild fantasy that you could possibly imagine, you can see that in the span of an hour. You can see, you can witness more than than what some human being living a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, a thousand years ago would have seen in their entire lifetime. Right. And so that's just the, the, the sheer amount of sexual data 
that we're getting and consuming in any given moment. So, okay, now that we've sort of talked about what porn actually is, I want to talk a little bit about the role that it plays within a man's life and and what I think it's actually maybe being used for sometimes and why it might be detrimental. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well. I don't think you and I have ever talked. I think I've talked about my connection to porn, but I don't think I've ever talked to you about porn. So I'm curious <laughs> to get your take on some of this. But generally speaking, well, can I share a little bit about how male sexual arousal works? Do you think that would be helpful yeah. or interesting? Yeah, let's go there. <laughs> so, okay. So when we as men get aroused sexually, what most people know about is like blood starts pumping to your penis and you get an erection and that's it, right? That's the extent of what we're kind of taught about sexual arousal. The important element of this is that when you get aroused as a man, in order to get a really sort of, let's just call it healthy or, or strong erection, in order to get aroused, you actually have to be in a part of your nervous system that's very important. So there's two parts to our autonomic nervous system that I'm gonna talk about real quick. One is the sympathetic nervous system and one's the parasympathetic nervous system. And they're less of separate structures and more of a, of a kind of scale, right? So you can imagine a seesaw because they're interconnected. Your sympathetic nervous system is responsible for flight, fight, or freeze. It's what allows you to get shit done right? So it's connected to your, your motivation, et cetera. And so your sympathetic nervous system is kind of like the gas pedal of your body. It allows you to go and do things. And, and there's all kinds of stress hormones that are connected to it, like norepinephrine and adrenaline and cortisol, et cetera. The parasympathetic nervous system is the brake pedal. It's responsible for your relaxation when you're calm what, and what, what's called rest and digest right? So that's where oftentimes dopamine can be released. It's where you are relaxed. It's where your body is restoring. It's where your body is breaking down food and replenishing itself, et cetera. So what's interesting about this and why it matters for the male sexual arousal system is that in order to get aroused or when you start to get aroused as a man, your, your nervous system actually shifts into a more parasympathetic dominant state. So you move more into a rested, relaxed, calm orientation. And the closer you get to climax or orgasming, the more you move into a stress-dominant state. Okay, so why does this matter? It matters because the majority of non-medical erectile dysfunction problems, the majority of premature ejaculation problems are a result of a man being stuck in his sympathetic nervous system, in a, in a sympathetic nervous system dominant state. So he's just stuck in a stressed state and he can't get out of it. He can't relax. And when you can't relax as a man, you can't get hard. You can't get aroused. You can't get turned on. So when you think about performance anxiety, when you think about, and, and performance anxiety is, is a lot of self-reflection, right? You're just constantly it's like circular thinking You're like, oh, am I doing okay? Am I performing okay? Am I enjoying this? Is she enjoying this, et cetera? So when we get stuck in performance anxiety, what's happening is all of our attention is in our brain, away from our body. All of our attention is on stressful thoughts and those stressful thoughts are releasing stress chemicals in the body and moving our nervous system into that stressed out state and then we can't get aroused. So what does this have to do with porn? What it has to do with porn is that Many of us as men struggle to many guys that are out in the dating world right now find it much easier and less stressful to go and watch porn than to go and engage with their partner. They might get rejected. They might get turned down. There's a lot of effort and energy that has to go into finding a partner, finding a mate, you know, getting into a relationship or, or even just, you know, finding a, a, a hookup or a one night stand or whatever the case may be versus a going onto your computer, opening it up, clicking the mouse and, you know, typing in a porn website, there's very little risk. 
there's very little risk of rejection. There's very little effort that's that's implied in that. And so what has happened is that a lot of men have started to use pornography as a means of regulating their internal system. So I'm going to say one more piece about how a man's arousal works. So parasympathetic, brake pedal, calm, sympathetic, stressed out, and and go. The more aroused you are, the more close to climax you get, the more you move into that sympathetic dominant, the more stressed out your system becomes. And when you ejaculate, you actually move really heavily for a moment into that sympathetic nervous system dominant state. That's what actually causes your body to your perineum to contract and your, your, the musculature to all go. And then for you to ejaculate, right? Well, afterwards, what happens in your body is that you move very heavily into a parasympathetic rested state where you feel calm, you feel relaxed, and your body has released a whole bunch of chemicals that match that right dopamine oxytocin and ah i'm blanking on the last one which is an important one but dopamine oxytocin and one more that will likely show up in my brain later on and there so what ends up with uh serotonin is is less released prolactin there it is prolactin which serves very different functions between men and women but within men, prolactin is released after ejaculation. And it's what really causes that sensation of like, ah, you know, like totally relaxed afterwards, like a puddle. Like I don't want to go do anything, you know? Yeah. And so what's, what's happening, you know, what I've seen a lot of guys doing is that they're using porn to move away from stress states. So when they're stressed, when they're overwhelmed, when they're anxious, when they're feeling disconnected from their partner, when they're frustrated, when they're lonely, when they are feeling isolated or bored, that's when they're going to watch porn. Not necessarily when they're aroused, but when they're experiencing something internally that they don't want to feel. I'm bored. I don't want to feel that way. I'll just go watch porn. I'm anxious. I don't want to feel that way. I'll just go watch porn. I'll jerk off. I'll orgasm. I'll feel better. So porn has become this mechanism that's tied to male sexuality in a lot of ways where guys are using it to hit the reset button when they're feeling something they don't want to feel. And it's a very unconscious process for a lot of guys. So in the book, I lay out basically like a plan to stop watching porn for a period of time for the men that are wanting to stop watching it, because not every guy wants to stop watching pornography. And that's, that's their right. They don't have to, right? But for the guys that are wanting to stop watching pornography, I, I sort of laid out like a plan of here's what you do if you want to stop watching pornography. And one of the big things that I talk about is get very clear on what you are feeling and experiencing right before you want to watch porn. Are you actually aroused or are you bored? Are you anxious? Are you overwhelmed and stressed out? Are you feeling lonely and you don't want to feel that way anymore? And so you just want to go get off. So that's a little bit about porn in a nutshell. I'm curious to get your take because I just said a whole <laughs> bunch of shit and explained the autonomic <laughs> nervous system and pornography and and regulation and yeah. yeah I mean, I'm curious. I've never actually I've never actually heard of that kind of explanation with the nervous system and all of that. So that actually like really helped me understand it a lot more. You know, I would say for myself, like I don't. I, I used to look at porn as a kid. I used to watch it as a kid back in the in the dial-up days <laughs> <laughs> all the all the all the kids just bogging down the dial-up internet with pornography yeah i was like oh you can do what <laughs> um but I, I i think i've just never really i try i've always strayed away from it because i didn't want to like pollute my mind in terms of relating to an actual physical mm. a woman in the flesh right and you know i've i've seen things here and there but i wouldn't say i've like necessarily tried to watch it consistently and interestingly enough i was just uh like from a like a reflection from a recent lover was like she's like your way i love she's like i love that you don't watch it watch porn because it it feels like it makes you a better lover because you're more mm. in tune versus mm -hmm. like trying to like be mechanically like mechanically move through a process it's like i'm feeling her more and i'm feeling 
-hmm. like I'm moving with her energy more than trying to be like already having this like idea in my head of what it needs to be. And I mean, that's been a process. I'm just like, that's like something I've been working through in a process in, in and of itself. So yeah, no, that's, that's a great journey. That's, I mean, I think that's a really great piece to add is that, you know, like, like I said, because porn is entertainment, oftentimes a, a lot of us are just learning about what sex should look like or could look like from pornography. And so I think a lot of guys sometimes struggle. And again, I'm speaking generally, right? This isn't everybody. Some people have a great relationship with pornography. Some people use it in a very specific way. It's like anything else, right? You can smoke weed once in a while and it fits into your life great you can have a drink once in a while and have it be great but for some people that's not the relationship that they have with booze or weed or pornography so i think that it does sometimes skew our perspective of what sex should look like in the bedroom and men can become very performative you know i need to i need to fuck for this long and it needs to look like this and you know, I, I think that it can lead us to unrealistic expectations of what sex should look like because it is entertainment, you know, and I've, I've interviewed porn stars before both men and women, and I've talked to them and I've said, you know, what's it like being on set and how real is it? You know, obviously you're having sex, but like, how real does it feel? And almost every single time they're like, I mean, it's just a job. I'm just doing a job just like you on this podcast, having an interview, you're just doing a job, you know, or, you know, when you, when I work construction, because I, one of the guys that I talked to, he's like, you know, just like when you did construction, you were building sidewalks. That was the job. I showed up, I did my work, I did my job. And it, you know, it wasn't, what did he say? He's like, it's not like the sex that I have with my girlfriend. That's a very different mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. So, you know, I think we just be, need to be aware of that because what is fulfilling and i would almost argue what what creates a sense of sexual mastery is being able to tune into what the body wants in the moment of sexual arousal and being able to also be conscious to what our partner wants in the moments of sexual arousal and being able to lead that dance in some capacity you know to explore in one direction or another and if, if you're tuned into something energetically, then you're going to be much more likely to follow that, that thread versus, oh, I want to try that move that I saw on that porn the other day, you know, <laughs> it's like maybe, may, you know, maybe the wheelbarrow is exciting, but it's maybe not what's necessary right then and there in that moment, right? It's like, you got to gauge the situation a little bit, right? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I'll use a perfect personal example. And then I'll, and then I think we can probably move away from this topic that we've yeah. gone pretty deep into, which is, you know, when I was watching porn a lot, I had really crazy expectations on myself. Like I would watch the clock to see how long sex had been going on for, because I expected myself to last at least 45 to 60 minutes. And if I didn't, I'd be upset. And so I wasn't very present during sex because what I was doing was watching the clock to see how long we'd been having sex. Like imagine being on, I, I, you know, I think back and I think back to being on the receiving end of that and that's got to suck. You know, it's like I was yeah. there, but I was also in my head about my performance and how long it was going and, and what it looked like versus now. And in the last, however many years of my life that I haven't been watching porn, where I can be fully present and attuned. And it doesn't mean that I, you know, I can be fully present and attuned and dialed into what do I want to explore? Not what's a picture that I think I need this to look like, but what do I sexually want to explore right now in this moment because I'm tuned into and conscious of my own sexual arousal and my partners. And that has led to much more rewarding, fulfilling, and connected sex than I've ever had before in my life. Mm. And so I think what you're describing in your own experiences is likely very true, right? Because if our main appetite, if our main sexual diet is pornography, which is entertainment-based and performance-based, 
then when we go to the <laughs> the buffet of sex in our relationship, I, this is a terrible analogy. Now I'm totally, <laughs> totally botching it. But but when we go to have sex in our actual relationship, then we are going to be trying to replicate that in some degree and fashion. And again, that doesn't mean that it's always bad for some couples and some relationships. Exploring with porn can be absolutely beautiful and it can be really powerful, you know, especially people that have been sexually repressed or not really know what they want or like porn can open the doors to a lot of things. And there's also porn that's being created now that's much more holistic and real and it's real couples and it's not entertainment based and it's educational. And so I, I just want to make it clear that I'm not trying to villainize porn or say nobody should ever watch it. I think that type of fundamentalism isn't helpful either. I'm just trying to educate and, and share my personal experience because so many of the men that I work with and have worked with over the years, their sex life in their relationship isn't what they want it to be because they have this mistress and the mistress is pornography, right? Where anytime that they get rejected or they are afraid of, of asking for what they want sexually or exploring what they want sexually or creating that, they just turn to porn and it becomes the out for them to continue to maintain a dissatisfying sexual relationship. So that's my rant. That's my TED talk. Thank you for coming to my TED talk about porn on the Nick Onken podcast <laughs> on Onken Radio. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, brother. Well, yeah. Uh, thank you for the uh, conversation. I, it, was, it, was, it was a juicy one. It was a juicy one. Um, <laughs> uh, where can people find you and find the book and all the goods? Uh, you can head on over to mantalks.com forward slash book. And you can pick up the book there either through Amazon or any you know bookseller that you want. Mantalks.com is where you can find me. And then at Mantalks on Instagram and YouTube, post stuff all the time. I have a pretty rocking podcast as well. And so you can follow along there. Yeah. Well, thanks, brother. Thank you, sir. Thank you all for tuning into today's episode of the Onkin Radio Podcast with Connor Beaton. I am your host, Nick Onkin. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I would love it if you could help me out by leaving us a good review over on iTunes or Apple Podcasts now, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. Um, you can share out the episode as well. And uh, yeah, follow me over on the Instagrams at Nick Onkin if you want updated info. Don't forget about the upcoming Identity Alchemy course. Uh, so DM me over at my Instagram, the letters IA, if you're interested in learning how to build a personal visual brand that is authentic and congruent from the inside out. And with that, you know what time it is. It's time to go out and create your life by creating every small moment. We'll see you next time.